You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Preach tonight, I wouldn't even know that I would go so far as to call it a sermon because what I'm going to do might be characteristic of me for those of you that know me, but it's kind of uncharacteristic for what people tend to do with the Christmas story, um, Pastor mentioned that I'm going to be addressing some details regarding prophecy. And the, the, the reason that's the case is I'm going to take advantage of the fact tonight that everyone is familiar with the details of the Christmas story. I mean, we saw a program a couple of weeks ago where we had our young people act it out for us. I mean, we're, we're familiar with it. So I don't want to focus so much on what happened in the Christmas story and maybe analyze it and pull some truth out of it, but rather maybe ask the question tonight with you, why do we care? No, I mean, really, think about it. If you're, we know about the Christmas story due to its presence within the Gospels, particularly two, and that would be Matthew and Luke. And interestingly, uh, the Gospel of Mark doesn't, it didn't, the Holy Spirit didn't deem it necessary to include it there. It begins right with the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, the Gospel of John begins with an appeal to Christ's deity, his eternal past. He was one with the Father, and he came to the Word, became flesh, and dwelt among us. So that leaves two. Matthew focuses on primarily the genealogy and the, the claim to kingship that Christ has over the Jewish people, which leaves us with Luke. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about the Christmas stories and all the details we know regarding it, the one that gives us the most detail is Luke. Which is interesting because Luke was neither an apostle and nor was he a Jew. He's not necessarily someone that's concerned with genealogies, so to speak. Um, and, and, and interestingly, scholars agree that the time frame of the Gospels being written, written was likely Mark first and then Matthew and then Luke. And then John much later in his, John's Gospel again has an entirely different focus and structure than the other three. And yet Luke provides the most detailed account of the birth of Christ. So I... I kind of asked myself, why does Luke care? You know, he's writing to Theophilus that we see, why, does, why should Theophilus care? Why is it, what's important to know? You know, we were never commanded to celebrate Christmas or, you know, necessarily observe the birth of Christ in the first place. So why does Luke and the Holy Spirit go to such lengths to include it in the detail that he describes? So tonight we're going to look at a couple of things. We're not going to stand, but turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I think... We're going to open tonight by maybe establishing some of Luke's motives and maybe in a systematic lecture type way. I hope, I hope not to bore you tonight because the, 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 the facts are interesting, but um, certainly is, is uh, some interesting ground to cover. So in Luke chapter 1, we're going to answer the question as to why, why does the Christmas story matter? And we're going to start in verse number 1, Luke chapter 1. Luke says, for as much as many have taken in hand... To set forth in order a declaration, a recollection of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So for Luke's motives, 
I, I really want to draw attention to verse number four. That his entire, his entire recollection that he has in his entire gospel, the entire motive of his gospel, and the entire motive of Luke and Acts, because he's credited with writing both. In verse number four, he says that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And his method of accomplishing that is found in verses number two and three. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to run into the order most excellent Theophilus. Luke's objective here is to provide the reader of this gospel the absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that the information provided within is credible with the resources which he appealed to for his information. The details of the birth of Christ are critical to the fulfillment of prophecy. The, the details of his birth are critical to the fulfillment of prophecy just as much as the details of his death and resurrection were critical to the fulfillment of prophecy. And I, I usually preach inductively. I try to carry people along throughout my message, but tonight I'm going to give it maybe in a deductive lecture-style format because I want you to understand the importance of the details of the Christmas story. Luke recorded these events in his gospel not for us to enjoy a pleasant story. That's not what it's about. It's not just to paint a picture of Christ's humble origins to set him up for the Messiah that he is. They were written specifically to prove the credibility that Jesus Christ was born according to the exact specifications that God himself gave concerning the promised Messiah. So tonight what we're going to do is actually look at some of these prophecies concerning his birth particularly uh, and how Luke painstakingly incredibly verifies for us that it happened in the exact way it was foretold hundreds of years before Christ even came so that we can know for certain, we can know with certainty that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Now before we jump in to some scriptural appeals, um, I want to ad address a couple of details. So there, there are, in fact, hundreds of prophecies in the scriptures spanning hundreds of years uh, that specifically point to Jesus Christ in his first advent. His advent being the first time he came to earth to fulfill the work that the Father sent him to do. Scholars say within the Old Testament there are over 300. However, only 70 would be considered major prophecies that we would point to. The other 230 would be considered supplementary clarification uh, that adds some, adds some more specific details. However, again, as, as something that adds new information, those other 230 would be considered prophecies in themselves. However, they hinge on those, those core 70. Another, another thing we need to establish is that God alone has the ability to predict the future. He stakes his own credibility in the book of Isaiah on the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. When biblical prophecy comes true, what it is its purpose is for reinforcing our confidence in the God who gave it. So to establish a proper case for biblical prophecy being fulfilled in Christ, I need to first give maybe some supporting secular evidence for Jesus existing historically. What we're trying to do is reinforce that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So first argument against Jesus that people tend to give is that we have no idea that Jesus Christ, as he was mentioned in the Gospels, ever even existed historically. We would say, and, and so he's merely a legend. If Jesus didn't exist, he can't fulfill prophecy. He was never real. We would say the Bible proves Jesus existed 
due to the actual nature of the Bible, the, the, one of the common lines of, of, of mistaken thinking is that the Bible is just one big book that was written cover to cover. They don't, they don't see it as a work of 66 books whose writings were spread out across a very long period of time that all point to this one individual, nonetheless the New Testament, all written by various people, all of them making mention of Jesus Christ with the certainty that he existed. We'll just pretend. We'll pretend we'll entertain the fact that those cannot be, that an adequate appeal can't be made from those. So to appease our Bible deniers, secular history also proves it. And I'm, I'm going to use two major figures in ancient history. Tacitus is referred to as one of the greatest historians of ancient Rome, and he penned a work titled, titled The Annals in the year, approximately the year 80, 115. Tacitus mentions that the Christians uh, were scapegoated by Nero for the fire that burned Rome in the year 64 AD, during which time Tacitus himself was alive, and mentioned from a distinctly and even mildly antagonistic non-Christian view that the Christians were the followers of the one the Jews called Christus, who suffered the extreme penalty under our Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. Now the reason I mention that he is, it's a distinctly non-Christian view is that is that often these historical works are, are accused of having Christian interpolation, that Christians added it later. And, but all scholars have agreed that because of how negative this Tacitus is towards Christians at times, that what he says is verifiably his own words. So in fact, he's actually just confirmed the, confirmed the historical reliability that Jesus existed. The next would be Josephus Flavius, what this man was. He was a Hellenistic Jewish historian. He supported, he was for Rome. Uh, and he, but he was a Jew and a writer of what, a work called The Antiquities, written at about 80, 90. And there's one area where, where he mentions Jesus being crucified. And, and scholars have given arguments whether or not that's, you know, confirmed or denied. But certainly the one that is without a doubt is that he mentions Jesus in reference to the trial of James, his brother. He specifically mentions the trial of James, the brother of Jesus, which would have been a contemporary with Luke, a resource that he likely would have pulled from having grown up with Jesus. The nativity account, he would have had access to James, he would have had access to Mary. All these people that would know this information, James existed. Jesus existed. So this is very important historical evidence that we need to consider. So the eyewitness sources which Luke drew the details of his gospel from existed. Jesus existed, but, but was Jesus, as we understand him in the gospels, who he claimed to be? And so to, an to answer that, we have to turn to the Bible and we have to turn to prophecy. So concerning the birth of Christ tonight, it being Christmas, I want to consider just four. We're not going to go into all of them. We're only going into four prophecies of the 70 major prophecies concerning the advent of the Messiah, particularly his birth. So the first, you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, we're going to try to, like being conscious of time, I'm not going to turn there myself. I have them written, but you can try to turn there and follow along if you like. Our first one is going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses number 5 and 6. So this first prophecy, this first prophecy concerning the birth of Christ is that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah promised by God, will be a king from the line of David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days come saith the Lord that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. There are two key obvious prophetic takeaways. The Messiah will be a king. 
He'll be a king and he will be from the line of David. The second also points that this king shall be of God himself. The heir of David is identified as God, having the name the Lord our righteousness. Other prophecies that reinforce the, the Davidic line of the Messiah other, uh, and promises by God reaffirming this or it can be found in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 10 and then 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and 13 when Nathan is actually giving this promise to David himself. And Luke 3 and Matthew 1 both take very careful steps by use of genealogies to prove Jesus' legitimate claim to the Davidic throne. Luke by means of his earthly father Joseph and Matthew by means of his mother Mary. So, first prophecy. The Messiah will be a king from the line of David. Prophecy number one, if, you, if you're writing these down. Number two, prophecy number two that we're going to consider. The Messiah will be born in the town of Bethlehem. Now this is going to be found in Micah chapter 5. In verse number 2, what Micah says in chapter 5, he says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that it's to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting. Again, associating him with God himself. But, but this prophecy specifically, it pinpoints the exact location that the Messiah would be born, the town of Bethlehem. And, and actually... Archaeological studies and scholars have found that there are possibly two Bethlehems during the age in which Christ lived, one being north in Galilee, close to Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph would have been from, and some people have tried to use that to say, well, Jesus didn't travel to Bethlehem over here, he traveled to the one that was close by. However, the prophecy says Bethlehem Ephrata, and this in particular is the name given to the town south of Jerusalem that distinguishes it from the other. Ephrata could be either a particular distinction within the name itself as its, as its proper name or it would have been maybe a provincial name. In any case, we know that Bethlehem Ephrata is the town to the south of Jerusalem due to Ruth 4.11, which is significant as the verses following establish Ruth and Boaz as the, as the grandmother and grandfather of Jesse and great-grandmother of David, thus explaining why this Bethlehem to the south of Jerusalem is considered the city of David. So even though the scripture specifically says that Joseph went to Bethlehem of Judea, notwithstanding that, it is worth connecting the dots that he went to Bethlehem as he was demonstrably through both the chrono chronologies and the Old Testament account of Ruth to be of the house and lineage of David and thus needed to go to Bethlehem for the, the census that Caesar decreed. So, so number one, the Messiah would be of the line of David. Number two, the, the Messiah will be born in the town of Bethlehem. Number three, the Messiah will be born of a virgin. This is found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. He says, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Yes, amen. The sign of the Messiah will be that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, there are some textual critics argue here that the Hebrew word Alma that's translated virgin in this passage, they're like, it actually just means young woman generically. It just, it just means young woman. It carries no connotation. And technically, yes, that would be it, its, its exact meaning. However, Alma has actually been demonstrated throughout all of Scripture to nearly always contextually carry the connotation of a, a maiden with her sexual chastity intact. Um, that, that is exactly why virgin is the proper trans, translation term. 
Like that, that is proven throughout its use in the text, so contextually. So this is demonstrated actually when Hebrew scholars translated the Old Testament Hebrew word alma into the, the word parthenos when they were translating the Old Testament into Greek. And in fact, parthenos itself carries a specific context of virgin, which is how this is historically verifiable. So, moving quickly, what we're going to do is we're going to take just these four. Remember, there's 70. There are 70 here, and we're looking at four. And I want to put these in terms of the mathematical probability that these can be fulfilled by any one individual. So the Messiah is going to be of the line of David. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. And... And that the Messiah will be, well, the Messiah will be a king of the line of David, born in Bethlehem, and be born of a virgin. So there's four. These are four criteria that we're going to look at. So we're going to assume some of the statistics about the probability of all these being met individually. And and I'm going to explain. We we find some probability, let's say one out of of every ten people that you meet is left-handed. Maybe one out of every hundred people that you meet is from the country of Germany. So if you're, what are the odds of you running into a left-handed person from Germany? You multiply those two probabilities. You have one out of 10 and one out of 100. You put them together. So you, the odds are about one out of 1,000, give or take, that you're going to run into a left-handed person from Germany. So we're going to use that to maybe establish some of the probability that any one human being could have met all of the criteria set in these prophecies. And I'm, we're actually going to be extremely generous with it today. So... Disclaimer, I'm going I'm to use this as a reference. The city of Sioux Falls has a population of about 200,000 people. I looked that up this morning. That's about where we're at. So keep these numbers in mind as we try to give some very generous statistics and, and still come to a quite staggering number, I think. So a man, let's assume the probability of a man being born with a provable claim to kingship. His, his entire genealogy is written down. He can say, I am of the line of this man. And if this throne were ever reestablished, then I get to be king. All right, let's assume one out of 10,000 people has a, has a right to kingship. And if you put that in the context of the city of Sioux Falls, that means that there's, there's like 20 people in the city of Sioux Falls that could say, I, I have a legitimate right to kingship. Uh, w- would you say that that's a fair? That's fair. That's, that's fair. Because see, what we're doing with these statistics is we're, we're putting the odds against Jesus here. But that also reduces the, the idea that, this, that the outcome can be denied. So, so let's, let's consider that, that this, is, this is quite a fair number. One out of 10,000 people. So 20 people in Sioux Falls alone could have a legitimate right to kingship. Yeah. Moving forward. Someone being born of the line of David. Let's say that that's, so they're Jewish. They're, and they're of the line of David. This can be proven. Let's assume that that's one out of 100,000 people. So even in Sioux Falls, notwithstanding the entire world, just in Sioux Falls alone, there's probably two people that are related to King David and his direct descendants. We can assume that. A man being born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, south of Jerusalem. Well, that's a very small town. Very small town with not a very big population, but let's still be generous. Let's still be generous and say one out of a million. So there's, there's several million people in the United States I don't even know that there's a million people in South Dakota, but, but there's certainly a million people in, in California or New York or densely populated areas. So let, let's assume that it's one out of a million. There's still quite a few people that could claim to be born in Bethlehem and, and have a pretty reasonable number. So one of a million. A man being supernaturally conceived and born of a virgin. So there are nine billion people in the world. 
We're going to be generous here and say that the odds of a man being supernaturally conceived and born of a virgin are one out of a billion. There's, sorry, I said eight. I said nine billion. There's eight billion. That means there's a, that there's eight dudes running around out there <laughs> somewhere that were supernaturally conceived and born of a virgin. Eight dudes. Pretty generous, would you say, no? All right, all right. Are we all in agreement that these statistics are extremely generous because the odds of the, of the odds of them being likely are a lot less? Would you agree? Okay, okay. We're gonna move on. Do the math. Okay. Using these very generous numbers, like we said, and for calculating probability by multiplying these together, these are just four. These are just four of seventy. All right. We're gonna do this math with very generous numbers. The probability of just one person meeting all of these four criteria relating to just the birth of the Messiah. And, and the, again, these odds are far, they're far higher than what would be more realistic. The odds are 1 out of 1 times 10 to the 24th power. That's called scientific notation. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's when there's so many zeros, there's not a word for it. Yeah. All right. So that means there's a 1. So 1 out of 1 with 24 zeros after it. Just to meet all four of those with the generous statistics that we gave. Yeah. Now... Secular science, to put the sheer size of that number in perspective, we've already mentioned roughly 8 billion people are alive today, right? Yeah. Secular and social scientists have estimated that only about 117 billion people have ever been born in the history of the world. So a billion only has like nine zeros after it. They fall short about 15 zeros. Wow. So that means in the entire lifespan of the earth from creation to now, if we reset that dozens of times, the, those are the odds of just meeting the four. Yeah. I, I hope everyone can understand the significance of that. That's, yeah. that's nigh to demonstrably provable. It's undeniable. Yes, sir. So again, what we did here is we're, for only four of 70 prophecies and using extremely generous statistics that put the odds against Jesus being the Messiah, mind you. We, we pitted the numbers against him. We decrease the opportunity for denial, but there's one more prophecy which renders even those numbers infinitely more impossible. So that's, that's if any one person could meet those four criteria at any point in time, yeah. any point in time ever, past and future. But there's one more that doesn't necessarily pertain to his birth, but it's very important that Messiah was prophesied to be born at a very specific, very specific period of time. If you want, you can turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to deal with a prophecy that, if anyone who studies prophecy uh, would be familiar with this, these are the 70 weeks of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 24 and 25, he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now an important thing to consider here is that the word weak, it used in Daniel, actually the Hebrew word just simply means a group of seven. So it means a... a, a 
seven, a group of seven weeks would be 70, 70 weeks, it'd be seven sevens, basically, is what they're saying here. And it could actually be a group of seven days, a group of seven weeks, a group of seven months, a group of seven years, so on and so forth. And what determines what this week is referring to is the context. And in this case, it is, it is completely accepted across the board that it's referring to a group of seven years. Right here. So thus a week is, a week would be a, a group of seven, therefore a week is seven years. And there's four, so 70 weeks is a 70 groups of seven years, which would total to be 490. This is widely accepted in the scholarship of Christian and Jewish eschatology. So the prophecy says that between a certain period of time, which would be the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of the Messiah would be a period of seven weeks, plus, so seven weeks, which would be, which would be, um, 49 years, and then a period of 62 weeks, totaling a period of 69 weeks, in other words, 483 years. Now, it's generally accepted that 444 B.C. is the date that King Artaxerxes gives the command from Nehemiah. If anyone remembers Pastor's series through Nehemiah, that's the year that's widely accepted for Artaxerxes to give the command to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You can see that in Nehemiah chapter 2. According to Daniel 9.26, the Messiah will appear and be cut off, but not for himself. Now, virtually all scholars believe that Jesus was crucified between the 8th and 14th month of Nisan. That's a Jewish month in, in AD 33. That they, they've, they've narrowed it down to a period of about six days. So the Jews, so the, the month Nisan, that's it's not a month that we use because the Jews use a lunar calendar. We follow a solar calendar. So they, they have, every 12 months has a period of 30 days, a total of 360 days a year. So after proper adjustments, uh, the, the 8th and 14th of Nisan uh, for us would be about the first week of April in AD 33. Sound familiar? Okay. So the decree given by Artaxerxes was given in the month of Nisan. Now no specific day is given, but if, it, if it's in the month of Nisan, then we can reasonably assume it happened after the first. Yes. Couldn't have happened before the first. Yeah. It happened after the first. So our calendar, so, so no specific date is given, but it, it can't have happened any sooner than the first. So a 360 day per year calculation multiplied by 483, the 69 weeks of years, you get a total of 173,880 days between the decree given by Artaxerxes and the Messiah being cut off, Jesus being crucified. The difference between the year 444 BC and 3380 is 476 solar years in our calendar. When you add the 173,880 days, you come to March the 30th of 33 AD, which is the 10th day of Nisan. Interestingly enough, this would be the exact day that we refer to as Palm Sunday, which we would find in every gospel, including Luke in chapter 19, verses 28 through 24, where Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse number 9, which says, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This coincides with the time we determine in Daniel 9 to be the time when the Messiah is cut off from his people, but not for himself. They rejected him for being their king for the last time before he's crucified. The 10th of Nisan fitting well within our window of the 8th and 14th dates that were confirmed to be the dates of his crucifixion. So even with the probabilities of all people fitting the prophecies concerning the nature of his coming stretched across the entire history of the world, only one man fits the bill when it comes down to the exact time 
that the Messiah was prophesied to come. And I think we would all agree that that is Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of tonight? Honestly, I have no invitation for you. I've, I've just kind of spit a bunch of facts at you. But let's dial back to Luke chapter number one. Verse number four, what's the purpose for tonight? Maybe tonight we need to think about the Christmas story. Not just because it's pleasant, not just because it's a pleasant story to remember, not just because the details are neat, but because it was recorded just for us in light of the entire context of Scripture that we can know with the certainty of those things which we have been instructed in. Certainty. Remember those numbers. One out of ten to the 24th power just for four of the 70. And Jesus meets all of them. As we stand tonight with our heads bowed and eyes closed, we should just consider that Jesus placed his credibility on the scriptures concerning himself. Luke recorded all of the details that he did for the benefit of our confidence that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. As I said, there's not necessarily any call to action tonight. But maybe, in light of these truths that we have heard tonight, maybe take some time to kneel and thank God that he really did give us all the evidence and confidence that we need in his word to be certain of what we believe. Yes. Amen. So as we pray tonight, we'll have our invitation, and then, then we will move on to afterwards. And dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for what you've recorded for us in our word. Thank you that... You can give us confidence and certainty by, by proving yourself through the prophecy that you gave and that you fulfilled by the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, tonight, uh, even during this invitation hour, that if, if we need to take some time to be thankful for the confidence that you gave us in the nature of your coming, Lord. Pray that we would take that opportunity. Pray that you would be uh, glorified in this invitation time. In Jesus' name. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.